Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, January the 22nd. And we entered this last sermon on the theme of Hebrews 13, 8, where the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today we're going to look at how Jesus is the same forever. There was a man who was driving a local priest to worship one morning when all of a sudden the car in front skidded across the road and and killed a rabbit in the process. And the guy was deeply upset because he had killed one of God's creatures. So the priest went over the rabbit, poured something over it, and the rabbit came back to life. And the guy was amazed and he saw the rabbit take off into the field. But as he was watching it run, the rabbit stopped and waved. He ran another couple of yards and he stopped. He turned around and waved again. And, and this happened a few times. And, and the guy said to the priest, wow, that holy water is amazing. To which the priest replied, oh, this isn't holy water. It's hair and wave restorer. What picture comes to mind when you think of the word priest? When it comes to the word priest, most people think about a guy who goes around wearing black garments, a white collar around their neck, cross around the neck, maybe carries nothing but a Bible, maybe, maybe this small bottle of, of holy water. But the very word priest means one who stands for and mediates for another, one who offers sacrifices. The word priest is used 725 times in the Old Testament and 29 times in the New Testament. And the word carries with it the idea of one who acts as a bridge to link two parties. In the Bible sense, in the biblical sense, the two parties are God and man. In Hebrews, the word priest is used 12 times, and the word high priests is used 16 times in the word priesthood, five. So with that in mind, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews because this is where we're going to learn that Jesus is the same forever as our high priest. So reading from Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The writer declares that Jesus is our high priest, but notice he isn't just our high priest. He is our high priest, but what makes him so great? Firstly, first of all, Jesus is a great high priest because he has ascended into heaven. In other words, Jesus is operating as high priest in the heavenly realms. Jesus is great because he is serving as high priest in God's house in the heavenly realms. Secondly, Jesus is a great high priest because he is the son of God. In our very first sermon of this series, we looked at how Jesus referred to himself as the son of God, which always refers to his divine nature. You see, Jesus wasn't just a person. He is someone who carries authority and honor because he is the son of God. And then thirdly, Jesus is a great high priest because he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One of the lies that Satan whispers to believers, especially when we're going through hard times, is that 
Jesus doesn't really care or he doesn't really understand us. He was deserted by his disciples. He was rejected by religious leaders. He experienced loneliness, hunger, thirst. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was tortured in every way imaginable. And he was crucified on a cross. Friends, he knows what we are going through. He was tested in every way that we are. He knows what temptations are all about. He himself was exposed to the very onslaught of Satan. Why do we think he was sweating blood, drops like blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? He knows what it's like to endure great trials. And then fourthly, Jesus is a great high priest because in the face of all the adversity and all the temptations that came, that came his way, he did not sin. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, when we sin, when, when I sin, it's, it's our choice to do so. And it's a choice that we fail miserably at, at times. But he didn't fail. And despite facing everything that we face, he is our great high priest because he did not sin. And so because Jesus is our great high priest, the writer of, of Hebrews encourages us to simply do two things. First of all, the writer encourages us to hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Now, remember the book of Hebrews was written to encourage the Jewish Christians not to turn back to Judaism. And if there's an application which is still very relevant today, it is simply this. Don't give up. Don't go back to the world and its ways. How many people do we know who have given up the faith and went back How many people do we know who are Christians for years suddenly give up their faith? I've met lots of people over the years who were once faithful members of the church. They loved God. They loved Jesus dearly. They were active in services. Some some of these folks even preached and and taught Sunday school and and taught taught, taught the scripture and and Bible studies and, and were brilliant leaders. But what happened? Why did they fall away? In my limited experience, there's always one or two reasons that are given. They were either involved in a sin that they enjoyed so much that they didn't want to stop, just to be blunt, or there were relationship problems with their brothers and sisters, and they allowed that one person, or even that couple of persons, whom they had fallen out with to stand between them and salvation. Now, I understand struggling with sin. I struggle with sin. And I understand relationship problems within the church. But the real reason so many fall away is simply because they have forgotten. They've forgotten why they came to Jesus Christ in the first place. They've forgotten that the Son of God is in heaven, acting as a high priest, waiting for them to speak to him about their struggles, about their problems. And so often we, they, we, end up focusing on the wrong things and just go through the motions of being a believer before we fall away. There are times when I think Christians can become spiritually desensitized. 
You know, we've we've taken we've taken the bread and the wine so long we just take it without any deep thought as to why we're taking it because it's something we've just done for years. We've we've sung the same songs or hymns for years and we know them by heart. What the words have become just words, no meaning anymore. We've heard thousands of sermons over the years, and we're at the point where we think there's nothing new to learn from the Scripture. We've heard it all before. We all can become desensitized, even in matters of faith, if we're not careful. Yes, we struggle with certain sins in our lives. Yes, we all struggle to get along with certain members of the church at times, but we can never forget Jesus will always and forever be a high priest who has nothing but our personal interest at heart, and he's longing for us to talk to him about these very struggles and problems. Speak to him. Don't give up. Don't go back to the world. Don't let go of the faithful confession that we made at the beginning of our walk with Jesus, whether we've been a Christian for one day, 60 years, for 100. Don't throw it away now, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will never give up on us. So let's not give up on him. The second thing that the writer encourages us to do is to recognize our ability to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Do we have any idea how blessed we are to have access to the holy God, to the God and creator of the universe? In the Old Testament, the high priest was like, the supreme religious leader of the Israelites. And because the high priest held the leadership position, one of his roles was overseeing the responsibilities of all the other priests. And the Levitical priests entered their service when they were 25 years old and retired at 50. But on the day of atonement, it was only the high priest who could offer a sin offering, not only for the sins of the whole congregation, but also for himself. It was only him who could enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God. The people couldn't enter. The normal priest couldn't enter. None of them can enter and seek forgiveness themselves. The point is that Jesus, by being our priest, allows us to access God with confidence. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. You see, when we approach God in prayer, there's no need to be nervous or fearful. When, we, when we're going through difficult times, we should have confidence. We can't have confidence to know that we'll receive what we need most of all. And what is it that we need most of all in our time of need? Well, we need grace and we need mercy. We need help in our time of need. And he will forever know what we need and he will forever meet that need because Jesus will forever be our high priest. Hebrews 6, 19, 20 reads, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, when we think of the word anchor, what comes to mind? We would, 
we would be forgiven if, if thinking it was a huge metal object that boats use to keep the ship in one place. Of course, I, I think that's probably what we always just go to immediately. And, and in some ways that's true, but there's also another meaning to the word. You see, in biblical times, someone would leave the ship while having a rope tied around their waist. And when they got to the shore, they would tie that rope around a rock to secure the ship in place. The anchor wasn't the metal object. It was the person who swam to shore with the rope tied around them. Jesus is our anchor, but not in the sense to stop us drifting away, but in the sense we will be secure in the presence of God if we stay tied to him. Now, tradition says that when a high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would have a rope tied around him just in case he died while he was serving God or, or God struck him down. And so those who were waiting outside could drag him out if he had died or if he'd been struck down by God. Now, whether that's true or not, I, I don't really know. But remember when Zechariah was in the temple with, and Gabriel spoke to him and he was in the temple for a while, wasn't he? He was in there a while. And Luke 1.21 says, The people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Now, nothing much has changed today, has it? We still have people who want to worship to, 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 who want worship to finish at the exact same time every week. We still have people who, who only want to sing a certain amount of songs during worship. And, and, and you know, if we polled everyone in the congregation, I'm sure we would, we would be of complete unanimity, wouldn't we? Of course not, right? We still have people, believe it or not, that think that the sermon must be less than 10 minutes or it has to be over 30 minutes. I mean, why do we grumble about things not happening the way we think they should? Why do we grumble when things are running late? We grumble because we've got places to go, people to see and things to do. We, we've got stuff to do. But haven't we all got busy lives? Haven't we all got places to go and people to see? Now, you might be thinking, is as Alan speaking to me? Well, yeah, I am. But you got to know, friends, I'm speaking to myself. And if anyone else needs to listen, you can. I recognize my own personal time management problem. And I see the Lord's church. And I see that it's spreading like some kind of virus throughout the church. The, don't, don't these things tell us we're buying into the world's culture? Don't these things show us that we're being influenced by, by the world? I understand we have to work. I understand we want to spend time with our families and loved ones and enjoy pleasures that God has given us for, to, to be enjoyed. I know we need time to rest and to sleep, to have fun. But think about it this way. There are seven days in one week, 24 hours in one day. There are 168 hours in a week, 10,080 minutes in one week, 1,440 minutes in one day. That's a lot of time that God has blessed us with, isn't it? Now, I know we worship God every minute of every day and every week of our lives. Worship is, is, is a lot of things. It's not simply standing up and singing songs. Don't hear that from me. But ask ourselves this. How much time do we as a church spend together in a normal week? An hour and a half for worship? Maybe an hour for, for a Bible study? Maybe an hour for, for uh, uh, you know, on a Wednesday night, midweek service, so to speak? Maybe an hour for some one-on-one or small, you know, groups in a, in a, in a coffee, coffee shop Bible study? You know how much time that adds up to? Well, if we, if we attended all of those things, 
That's 390 minutes. And God gives us, in his grace, 10,080 minutes every week. And the church here, if we attend everything, meets together for a grand total of 390 minutes of those minutes. I mean, it begs a great question. What are we doing with those other 9,690 minutes? What are we doing with those other six and a half days? And if we just attend worship, what are we doing with the other 9,840 minutes of the week? Surely the God of the universe, the God who sent his son to die for us, deserves a little more of, of my time. The God who became flesh so he could die for us and act as our high priest. Surely he deserves a little more time than the time that I offer up to him each week. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I am not saying that if you don't attend anything other than the worship service, that you're a bad Christian. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you don't pray throughout the week or study throughout the week or serve him in some way throughout the week. I'm simply trying to get us all to think about what we're doing with our time. If we can't meet with other Christians except a Sunday morning, why? Why is that? Now, I can't answer that question for you because all of us need to stop and ask ourselves that question every day of our lives. I feel like many of us do it at times when we have those moments when we're really tired, we've had a busy day at work, and we just can't be bothered to attend something else. We just don't need another meeting or something else to go to. But we drag ourselves there, we show up, and why? Because there's blessing in that. There's fellowship to enjoy. There's encouragement to give and to receive. And there's love to share among one another. Now, maybe some of us have become desensitized to these words, blessing, fellowship, encouragement, and love. And we've forgotten what they involve and what they mean. Maybe some of us have forgotten that we're supposed to influence the world. So let me ask us, what's stopping us from being more involved in the life of the church in general? It's one thing identifying what's getting in the way of our meeting with our brothers and sisters outside of worship time, but it's another thing to do something about it. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 reads this way, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The authorized version, the King James version, uses the words redeeming the time, which means making the most of our time. Have our souls forgotten what life is really about? Have our souls forgotten that there's more to life than work and pleasure and even family? Have our souls forgotten that we're only here temporarily and our eternal home is in heaven? How's our time management? How's my time management? What am I doing with my God-given time? Friends, I understand we're not commanded to come together for a Bible study or a prayer meeting or any more than we're commanded to meet in an upper room or have fellowship meals. But if coming together to pray with other Christians, to be with other believers, isn't important to us, we need to understand that it'll never become important to those who are watching us. Our children, young Christians or friends. If our neighbors or new and young Christians see that studying scripture with other Christians isn't important to us, then we need to understand that they will never think it's important for them. 
So coming together as a group of Christians regularly, not just on Sunday mornings, gives us strength. Togetherness gives us strength to stay focused on Jesus, strength to stay faithful another day, strength to help us stop the world in its tracks. You see, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever because his eye is on us 10,080 minutes a week. He cares for us and sympathizes with us 168 hours a week. He gives us his full attention, especially when we need grace and help when we ask him in prayer. And he will be our high priest forever, which also means we will be with him forever. So may God bless us as we seek to serve our great high priest as he seeks to forever serve us in God's presence. Amen. And God bless.